We're at a boxing club in Liverpool, a meeting place for ex-soldiers who served in Afghanistan and a support network for those scarred by the war. For some, it's the only way they have of processing the trauma and the defeat. Last August. In one provincial capital after another, the Taliban are running up their colours and taking control. The Taliban's advance across Afghanistan is unprecedented. The Taliban regained control faster than almost anyone expected. After 20 years, British troops watched as everything they fought for crumbled. The war gone by still haunts their memories and claims lives, even as it fades from the headlines. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the first of a special two-part investigation, PTSD and the war. Part one, the trauma. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Major General Rob Thompson, um, a rifleman, um, and today a Major General. Major General Rob Thompson. I met him in an extremely emotional interview, actually, in an extremely unemotional building, the Ministry of Defence building in London. I commanded two rifles battle group back in 2009 when we were based in Sangin in the Upper Helmand Valley. He was a lieutenant colonel during that toughest of tours. We were a tight gang, we were operationally experienced. People had been in Basra, 10 operations in 10 years, but there was no sense of arrogance. We knew we were going into an area that was gonna be really hard. Preparing the battalion for the tour was really, really important. We talked people through preparation, so soldiers uh, were made, we all made our wills. We talked about writing letters to loved ones. I remember writing, Do you want me to hit pause for a no, moment? No, it's fine. Why don't I hit pause it's for a minute and let you have a look? Okay, it's fine. Charlie, tell me a bit about Ahmed Zai. Tell me a bit about your memories of working with him. Ahmed Zai was the first. Afghan interpreter that I worked with in 2007. It's a young guy. He came to work for our NATO headquarters down in Kandahar. I was the interpreter for Americans before that. In 2005 and 6, I was working for them. And then the British uh, Major General, Jacob Page, he was looking for someone who could speak good English. They told me, don't work for Americans. The British general likes your English. 
Then I began working for uh, Major General Charlie and Major General Jacob Page, who was the commander of the South Regional Command South. So I was working with senior level government officials, four-star generals. We spent most days in each other's company. He bought us all, uh, at his own expense, local Afghan clothing, and he, he dressed us all. He, he accompanied me. We went on huge long road trips from Kandahar to Zabul on, on roads that were laced with IEDs and ambushes. And he'd come along and he'd sit in the back of a Humvee with me and, and, and we'd just laugh along the way. He'd sit and he'd try and teach me Dari and he'd try and teach me Pashto and, and I have no skill for languages and he'd just take the mickey out of my appalling accent. He was just such a fun, such a character. But he desperately helped us to understand what life was like in, in Afghanistan. He became far more than my interpreter. He was my cultural guide, my political advisor to everything that was going on. Charlie treated me like his brother. We were like family members. They were so kind. I imagine at times their lives would have been at risk if they hadn't been able to understand what was happening with you trans yes, translating yeah, them. Yeah, it was vital. And we risked our lives and together we work like one team. We relied on one another. But what happened was that sometimes they captured Taliban and then they were brought for interrogation. In the interrogation, I was translating. I was not covering my face. And those Taliban recognized me. He attended numerous very high-level delegation meetings across southern Afghanistan with me. And we all know that in those meetings are members of the Taliban. I mean, 100%. And, and they would have seen his face. It's a relatively small place, Afghanistan. Then uh, they began uh, threatening me. They began following me. They tried to target me. And it all happened after uh, my job working for UK Armed Forces. Earlier this year, he had two particularly awful, I mean, chilling threat messages from the Taliban. In the letters, they said to go to their court and speak to them. I mean, of course, if I had gone there to talk to them, they would kill me. So I, I didn't go there. And in the second one, they made it quite clear that their shadow courts had sentenced him to death in absentia. They sentenced me to death. They said that we ordered all our fighters, that anywhere you are found, you will be shot and killed. It's no exaggeration to say that I would have trusted him with my life. And, and it's a measure of this man that, that 14 years later, we're still in touch with him. And we're still all fighting on a daily basis to put right what appears to be this extraordinary injustice by the Home Office. He got a letter in, in early July confirming that he would be moved to safety in the United Kingdom on the 1st of August. I was supposed to go to UK. I got accepted. They told me that we will issue the visas on July 29. I was overjoyed. I, I, I mean, he's been waiting 14 years for this. For 14 years, he's been ineligible. He was employed on a third-party contract. He wasn't employed directly by the British military, which for 14 years meant under the UK policy he was ineligible for protection and relocation to the United Kingdom. And when the new policy came into effect on the 1st of April, Ahmed Zai applied. And a month later, he, he got a letter from the Ministry of Defence to confirm his eligibility. 
I took my kids for shopping. All my kids were so happy. They bought their shoes, their dresses, and they packed everything. I can't tell you. I told everybody that worked with him, you know, back in 2007 about this. We were all just utterly overjoyed for him. I was supposed to go to UK on August 1. On July 29, I was asked to come to the embassy to issue the visas. And two days before he was due to fly, he gets an email from the Ministry of Defence representatives in Kabul to say there's a, there's a problem. We don't have your, your visa. And he's nervous. And, and I spend the next five or six days saying, look, don't worry. Don't worry, my friend. You know, you're in the system. You've, you've been granted eligibility. This is just taking time, but it's coming. And then on the 11th of August, as the situation is crumbling, he, he receives an emailed letter from the Home Office. They told me your case has been rejected and you cannot come to UK. Rejected? So now I'm working. Yeah, it got rejected. I said, why? They said, you are a threat to the UK security. Why? They didn't give me anything. You have sought entry clearance to the United Kingdom as a relevant Afghan citizen. However, your presence in the United Kingdom has been assessed as not conducive to the public good due to your conduct, character and associations. I therefore refuse you entry clearance to the United Kingdom under paragraphs, blah, blah. They said, uh, you are a threat to the UK security, so we do not give you the visa. Did they give you any reasons for, for why that was? No, do no. Do you have anything in your past that you think might they might be looking at? Nothing. I told them that you tell me why you are saying that, so at least I get a chance to defend myself. I even told them that you take me to UK, and there you put me directly in the prison, take me to the court. If you believe I'm not the right person, you can even sentence me to death. Just two days later, on Sunday morning, the Taliban had arrived in Kabul. The government collapsed. Later that day, it would be confirmed that the president had fled the country. Ahmed Zai had been working in a senior role in the presidential palace. Hello? Hi, it's Manveen from The Times. How are you? Hi. Very good. Thank you. How have you been? I've been watching the news. It's looking so alarming. How are things in Kabul? In Kabul, the government collapsed. This morning I came to the palace and everyone was leaving the office running. Everyone left from the palace, the deputies, the directors, everyone. And a few minutes later, Four helicopters landed in the palace and evacuated someone. Maybe he was the president. So if they've evacuated the president, if, if, if the presidential palace is empty, those helicopters have gone and people like you weren't able to get on them. What happens to you now? Yes, everyone left. The city is totally empty. I'm going from office to home where my home is occupied by Taliban, and the way also has been occupied by Taliban. I cannot stay here, where I am. Where, where is home? It's in the 12th district of Kabul. And that area is already taken over by the Taliban? Yes, yes, that is taken by Taliban. So now 
I'm going to a different location. I'm going to bring my wife and kids and hide them somewhere. What are your best chances of getting out of Kabul? I don't have any chance now. The only chance is that right now I'm going to the airport. They're evacuating the embassies. If I get a chance to be evacuated in these flights, otherwise I will just get stuck here. So There's no chance left then, because all the embassies closed, no visa no flights. The Taliban took over Kabul from different borders. You might be hearing this helicopter. So that's why you see this helicopter. I can, I can hear a bit of the chaos behind you. Will you take your family to the airport and try to get on one of those flights? What I will do in the airport? Even if I go there with the flight, my name is not in the evacuation list. They won't let me get a flight. They didn't tell me to come and we will evacuate you. They only evacuate the people, they call them, and they never called me. I really hope you can get your family on one of those flights. Yeah, I hope so. We're going to call from here. We're going to try to find out if they can get you on a flight. But how long do you think you've got? How long do you think the people of Kabul have got? To be honest, I mean, today the, the Taliban complete Kabul, you know, maybe in about an hour or two, because most parts of Kabul have been taken by Taliban. Good luck. I really hope you can stay safe and I really hope you can get out very soon. I hope so. Will you let me know what happens? I will keep you updated. I will send you messages in this number. Please. I will. Good luck. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Ahmed Zai's WhatsApp went dead that afternoon. We were really worried for him. Then he sent me a text. It said, The route to my home is already controlled by Taliban and they had checkpoints on the way from the office to my house. I deleted my WhatsApp and burned some documents before I reached the checkpoints. The Taliban didn't recognise me. Now I'm in hiding. We spoke to Charlie yesterday, Monday morning. I'm in touch with him right now. He's moved to a safe house in Kabul. What do you do? What do you do when he phones you late at night to say, I was at, I was at the palace this afternoon? I saw the helicopters leaving with the president on. What do I do now, Charlie? I mean, what do you say to somebody in most circumstances? I, I wish Pretty Patel could take a call from him and explain to him why. Why he was good enough to live with us and fight with us and die alongside us, potentially. But he's not good enough to come to this country 